Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Healthy Perspectives podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's journey, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me. At risk of looking a little silly today, I'm going to go ahead and take on a topic that is is pretty tough uh, and made me do some research. The the topic I'm going to take on, I, I mentioned in a previous podcast just briefly that I had a, a person that I would, have, would consider a friend um, and a, slightly more than an acquaintance, right? And so not, not close, but also known, somewhat known. And we, we, there was this, this dialogue that started up a little bit. And in that dialogue, it became about the extremists, extremists on the left, extremists on the right, uh, where, where they are, what their extreme views might be, stuff like that. And so I decided I was going to do a little bit of research because, you know, extremists often, so in my, my time in the military, I, I heard about, uh, you know, different terrorist groups. Uh, I, I studied terrorists in, in different cultures and how they, uh, they do their, their different terrorist activities. It was part of our, our military training. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I am learning is that terrorism is, is changing. And that's the point of it, right? The idea is that it shifts because by nature, it's generally a smaller group of people. And by nature, they're trying to make extreme ideological statements. So I decided it was time for me to do a little research. Actually, some of you might find this extremely interesting. I guess we're going to find out. I pulled up the USA Patriot Act, and I read through it. It's, it's a really long document, first of all. It's very long. So for those of you who are interested, you can, you can actually read it in, I don't know, maybe a couple of hours, something like that. It's, it's not an easy read, uh, but you can get the gist of it if you wanted to in probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes. That doesn't mean you'll know a lot but you'll have a pretty good idea of what it's all about. And I started there because in 2001, when our our twin towers were attacked by terrorists, well, I wanted to have a, a, a more modern point of view on what we view as terrorism. And so I went to that um, obviously, I could have gone back to my terrorism awareness trainings in the military. I, I still probably have those books in a uh, in a bin in my garage, most likely. Uh, but this one's current. This one's probably more current, right? In two thousand and one, uh, the the Congress and they they just took a really good look. And I just want to read to you some of this. This act is called the Uniting and Strengthening America, so USA, by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism, which is USA Patriot Act. So those of you who didn't know, 
they've actually given you the acronym in the, the short title. In section 102, the sense of Congress condemning discrimination against Arab and Muslim Americans. That's a big deal. Part of the design of this was an anti-racist, anti, uh, you know, the, these, these paradigms that we form that aren't correct about all peoples. And we generalize it as if it's all peoples. It's just not, it's not a wise practice, whether it's about racism or gender or any, like to generalize it as all when it's a small amount is silly. And that's what they're talking about is we don't want people to generalize and attack small groups. But that leaves us with lots of dilemmas. So I'm going to go ahead and go on to the next part that, that I identified as pretty interesting in my world. The definition of domestic terrorism is at section 802. And that's because I think one of the things that we're dealing with more and more today, culturally, is this idea of domestic terrorism. And I think that would be echoed on whichever side of the aisle you would be sitting, whether you are uh, on the right side or the left. It says domestic terrorism defined. Number one, in paragraph 1B3, by striking by assassination or kidnapping and inserting by mass destruction, assassination or kidnapping. We have a classification for mass destruction now. That's a big deal because domestic terrorism, what we see these days, look, you know, the, the stuff that happened in, you know, at the, uh, uh, the January 6th, I believe, um, last, you know, when, when the presidential switch occurred, there was the perception that there was mass destruction or potentially mass destruction. And uh, some of that didn't really play out and some of it did. And so there were some people, obviously there's, depending on which side you listen to, because for me personally, I've listened to both sides of the argument, what left-wing media says, what right-wing media says, because I want to understand their, uh, their narrative, their underlying narrative. Like, what are they trying to accomplish from these incidents? And the mass destruction is a big deal in there. Um, let's see. It also talks about number two... Number three, hold on. The term domestic terrorism means, this is number five. Uh, you can go through and read this, but this is super interesting to me. The term domestic terrorism means activities that A, involve acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state. Which means if you damage somebody's property, if you, uh, you know, try to uh, do a hostile takeover of, of the streets, by definition, those are criminal laws. That's, you know, peaceful protesting is not a criminal law violation. Peaceful protesting is allowed. But anything that violates criminal laws of the United States or any state, 
B, it says, appear to be intended to, number one, intimidate or or coerce a civilian population. This is where we get into the idea of, you know, professional uh, folks who are getting paid or potentially getting paid to go and riot. That's a problem because that's a coercion. That is a, I'm going to send out people who can really work up an audience for the purpose of coercing a civilian population. That's a problem. Number two, it says to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. Can we like acknowledge that judges' homes and Supreme Court justices, their homes should be left alone? Because that, just by definition of this right here, influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. If our justices are part of the government process, which they are, they're federal justices, they are not supposed to be intimidated or coerced. Number three, to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Now, that that was a lot to digest. This is basically what it says. In the event that a group of people, it doesn't even matter the size. The size is not determined in here. Get together to coerce, break criminal laws. In other words, violate the U.S. laws or the state laws. We could potentially prosecute. That's what it says. It's, it's black and white right there in front of me. This is easily accessible to all of you. You guys can look this up. I'm going to flip over. I've got the FBI website, and I'm going to define for you international terrorism and domestic terrorism. International terrorism. It's violent or criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups who are inspired by or associated with designated foreign terrorist organizations or nations. Domestic terrorism, violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences such as those of political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. When I read that at first, I was actually kind of surprised. It's so broad. It's so broad that it's clear to me uh, the BLM, domestic terrorism. Uh, you know, any white supremacist group, domestic terrorism. Any anybody that breaches political, religious, social, racial, or environmental um, influences uh, on the U.S. government or civilians, for that matter, potential domestic terrorism. Like it's so broad that they could really look at any of us potentially as terrorists. Which brings me to something that's really, really important. The way our legal system works, in my understanding, is we are not supposed to be looked at for the things that we have done wrong. A thing that has been done wrong is supposed to draw the attention to us. So it's not like the person should be pinpointed. 
And then we point out all, I think about this in clinical terms and I think, holy smokes, that's so interesting to me because in a clinical scenario, I'm not to judge the individual sitting in front of me for all the things that they could have done wrong. If I'm digging for the things that they have done wrong, I guarantee you, every one of you out there, including me, we can find plenty of things that we have screwed up. Probably even laws that were broken. And in some cases, laws that were broken and you didn't even know they were laws. That is a problem. We cannot look at an individual to find all the things that they did wrong. The evidence has to bring us to the individual, not the other way around. That's the way our system is set up culturally. But I'm also watching what our culture is doing. And it's treating oftentimes people as guilty first. And then they find the evidence of why they're guilty. That's by definition confirmation bias. Those of you who have listened to me in the past, you know what I'm talking about. We cannot run around confirming our bias. Oh, I don't like them because I'm going to find five reasons why. That's unhealthy. Relationally, that is unhealthy. We, if we could do that. If we did that to everybody, we would be absolutely secluded from everybody because we can find five things about anybody who walks in our door that we don't like easily. It could, it could even be the smell, the way that they smack their lips, the way that they pop their peas. It could be anything. Extremists are looking for the problems. And then all they see is the problems. Now, I'm not suggesting to you we don't have problems. But I'm telling you, if we're looking for the problems, and that's our sole mission, Everything we see is going to look like a problem. And that's just not reality. It's not reality. Not, there's a lot of good people that have come and sat with me and talked to me about stuff that have done really bad things. They're good people. They have screwed up. They're addicts. They went on a, a bipolar manic episode and they lost their junk on somebody. And it caused damage to property. You know, they're depressed and they've thought suicidal thoughts. These people have sat with me. And I'm telling you, for certain, that doesn't make them extremes. We cannot look at people individually, people as groups, as all bad. We just can't. We got to stop doing that. Not the, the right, the left. They're not all bad. If you're part of the independence, not all bad. Constitutional party, not all bad. Now they do have some, what we'll sort of term doctrine. Certain things that they believe in. Right? One of the clear glaring differences is, you know, when it comes to taxation. You can tell the difference between the different parties when it comes to this next one. Not a clear difference between the parties. No matter what the media is trying to tell you, the data has been consistent for decades that there is not a huge difference 
between the right and the left on abortion. There's not. Not a huge difference. Is there a noticeable difference? Yes, there's a noticeable difference, but it's not as huge as the media would like you to think. But there are people that benefit from extremists. And in all reality, that I think is a problem. There are people who benefit when BLM becomes extreme, like it did last year. There are people who benefit from that. And unfortunately, they are the ones who end up ahead, right? There's all kinds of stuff going, and by the way, all around the world. I was reading a, an article put out in the UK in April about the BLM monies. Where did they go? Where are they? How come we don't know? We know about all the other nonprofits. Why not this one? In my research, one of the things that I wanted to look at was why is extremists becoming more common? Uh, or is extremists becoming more common, right? So the hypothesis was it seems to be a little bit more common. And truth be told, I don't know that those numbers are increasing much. Uh, I, I, I'm not justifying any act of violence. That's just not who I am. That's not what I do. As a therapist, I, you know, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, fidelity, and veracity. Okay, uh, autonomy, they have the right to choose what they think, what they feel. Um, non-maleficence is to do no harm. Right there, violence is out. So why are extremes, why are they so prevalent? I would argue that they've been prevalent for a long, long time. And now they get more media coverage. We know that communication has increased like 10,000 fold in the last 10 years or something like that. It's, it's a ridiculous amount. It is uh, our, our communication is, think about this. It is 2022, 100 years ago, 100 years ago in 1922, what was there for media? So in 100 years, we've gone from newspapers, some magazines, probably not very many, even the newspapers were harder to get back then because the printing press and all that stuff. Handwritten letters. That was news. Handwritten letters. I was in the city and this is what I saw. And then they would send that to their, their aunt or their uncle or their, their wife or their husband or whatever. That's what it was a hundred years ago. So in less than a hundred years, we've gone from that to you can have instantaneous information. And if you can't see a problem with that, uh, I mean, Lord help you. Because when we have instantaneous information, think about how easy it is then to manipulate perspective, to manipulate your viewpoint. I can see something that I don't like in the world and send it out. And if enough people see this, they will think that it's happening everywhere. When it's a one-off, this little town in this little uh, state it, you know, had this one incident and historically that would have just been washed over because now I'm not saying it's right that it got washed over, but 
because the media is what it is now, we have to be really careful about those instantaneous feeds. Even some of those long-term feeds, there are, there are things out there that, are, that misrepresent people, that paint people in a light that's, that's not authentic. And why people would do that, I mean, they have their motives. I, I'm not going to judge their motives. What I can tell you, though, is it is creating more extreme behaviors, I think, if we do, in fact, have more extreme behaviors. Although, when I look back in history, there's been extreme behaviors for a very, very long time. So there's also the possibility that it only seems more extreme and is not actually more extreme, which I think would be an interesting research project. Although I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to find a, a particular uh, article that broke down extreme behaviors, um, you know, and psychologically those numbers haven't changed massively. Uh, we, we, we see things like in, with suicide, uh, you know, they, they do go up in a town once there is one. And then once the town settles down again, then they disappear typically for quite a while. We, we think we have some ideas as to why that kind of stuff happens, but you know, as far as political extremes and, and cultural extremes, um, there is one extreme that is, is an interesting one. Every civilization that I have seen historically, um, when, when it comes to uh, uh, sexual behaviors, the, the more extreme the sexual behaviors become, the closer the nation, the group is to falling apart. And that is consistent. You can go back to Rome. You can go like you can do the research, and you can see that sexual deviations from the norm, as they go up, uh, you know things like orgies and you know that it, it, back in that time were were considered extreme sexual behaviors or more extreme sexual behaviors. As prostitution rose, um, you were more likely to see the demise of a, a civilization, and that seems to hold true, although there is the potential since it is just one uh, factor that it is it's just a byproduct of the, the the decline of a civilization is the stress goes up and you know there's lots of potential explanations. so I don't want to assume, but it is interesting as sexual deviation from the norm increases, so does the fall of the civilization. So look, you may wonder, what do we do as a solution? So I'm going to suggest that as a solution, what we have to do, because this makes sense to me clinically, uh, what we have to do, what we would do when extremes happen in a, a couple's relationship, let's say, we have to find common ground and create the hard conversations. Or the extremes become more extreme to the point of separation. Sometimes the common ground becomes really hard to get to because this, the sides, the individuals on each side are struggling to um, let go of their own narrative, to open their minds and empathize. And when that happens, sometimes the separation has to happen in order for common ground to new common ground to be formed. And in those situations, the same thing holds true. 
that common ground is formed over growth. When I see the difference in you and you see the difference in me, then we say, well, maybe we can come back to the table. And that's an important piece. When extremes increase, so let's say we are in fact having extremes increase, which is very possible. What do we have to do to get to the middle, to find the reasonable people who can have the really hard conversations? That's what we've got to do. We've got to find the ways to get reasonable people to the table representing us, or maybe it's you. Go represent yourself. Go represent yourself in a reasonable fashion using dialogue, not monologues, not chanting, but real conversation to understand their viewpoint your own viewpoint better, and to grow. Ideally, to grow toward one another, to reduce the extreme behaviors. That's what we need to do, I think. So create hard conversations with reasonable people in the middle and say, let's come to an agreement. Even if we disagree in the end, let's agree on what we can agree on and When we have to agree to disagree, let's do it in a way that is respectful, kind, not mean, violent, rude. That's my suggested solution because it makes sense to me clinically, right? Clinically, we do that with couples all the time or families. We have to find that common ground to stand on to have those hard conversations. I'm by no means saying this is going to be easy. Especially when you're talking about cold. There's so many variables. It's not going to be easy. But I think if we want to shift the culture, that's what's going to have to happen. A move away from extremes toward the reasonable middle. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Have a great day.